If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Mark Twain. There are at least two theories to explain the name Mark Twain. The first was something they yelled on the boat while traveling down the Mississippi. If they were measuring a depth of six foot increments, and the depth was two of those measurements, or 12 feet, the boatman would yell, Mark Twain, Twain meaning Mark II. But I don't think that was it. I prefer the second theory. When Mark Twain was at the bar, he would yell for the bartender's attention while holding two fingers in the air as he yelled, Mark Twain, meaning put two on my tab. I think that was most likely. But after listening to part Twain of this call starting now, I'll let you decide which is more likely to be true. Well, I I found myself unemployed in San Francisco. I had worked for the Virginia Territorial Enterprise after, after I headed west. You know, when I was talking there earlier about Orion and everything. Sure. Uh, when I got out there, of course, he didn't pay me. And so I got the gold <laughs> fever. And after I found out you had to use a long-handled shovel uh, to dig gold, I didn't want to meddle with anything I didn't understand. So I came down and worked for the Virginia, Virginia Territorial Enterprise. Well... Mr. Goodwin, the editor, had not seen his family for a long time back east. And so I started, he left me in charge of the paper. And so I started to uh, edit and and put in some columns to his newspaper because I wanted to increase his circulation. And, uh, you know, people really wanted the, the newspaper to only contain facts. I, uh, I found that hard to believe. Um, so anyhow, uh, when I got challenged to a duel, I decided I did not want to hurt anybody. So me and a friend jumped on the jumped on a, uh, a stagecoach and went to San Francisco, where I found that I was out of a job. So uh, I got a on the, a night shift for the morning call. So uh, I timed my dismissal from the morning call to, con- to coincide with my uh, dismissal because it was cutting into my social life. And then that's when I went up into the hills to prospect. So upon coming back from that, I needed employment. So I went to work with the Sacramento Union. And that's when they, uh, that's when they um, made to the island report. Well, I was anxious to explore this dreamy, enchanted place, and I inquired as what the best method was to do this. They told me it was hire a horse. Well, I'd had some unpleasant experiences with these unpredictable creatures before, once back in Carson City. I was in need of transportation and attended an auction where I bought a genuine Mexican plug. I didn't know what a plug was, but it ended up being an unbroke coat. Well, 
experiences like that increase your respect for dumb animals. So back in Honolulu, I told the man's delivery, I wanted a safe horse to a fast wanted an accessibly gentle one with no spirit whatsoever, a lame one if he had such. So he showed me this creature that wanted to, to try to sleep. Well, along about noon of that first day, I spurred my animated trance down a stretch of sandy beach where I spied a bevy of two young native ladies bathing in the sea. Well, this was just a sort of collar that I was after for my newspaper. So I tied up the horse and went down and sat on their clothing to keep them from being stolen. That is very generous. Well, then I had another experience. I went to Maui, which was another one of the islands there. You know that the natives are the only ones that ever mastered the art of surf bathing. I tried it myself. I placed my board just right for a particular prodigious wave to come along, and at the right moment, too, but I missed the connection myself. And the board struck shore in, uh, in three quarters of a minute without any cargo at about the same time. I struck the bottom and was filled up with a couple barrels of water. When I came to the surface, I was missing some of the more important articles of my bathing attire. The thing of it was, when I contracted with the Sacramento Union to go to Hawaii, it was anticipated I would stay one month. Well, I'd stayed five. And if it hadn't been for a very fortunate incident, they may not have paid for me to come home. About this time, I was able to get a scoop from my newspaper, even though I was in bed suffering with a bout of boils and carbuncles on my backside. I hired some locals to carry me down to the hospital so I could interview the 15 survivors of the Hornet that had survived the 43 days in an open lifeboat. Having traveled over 4,300 miles after their ship's cargo casting had accidentally been set on fire and burnt the ship. Well, this is Probably also when I wrote that up for a magazine article earlier is where I could say was my first literary event. You know, when I got back, the Sacramento Union seemed to be upset that I'd spent so long on their dime, and they fired me. I went out and hired a hall, gave a lecture on my voyage to the Sandwich Islands. I haven't worked a day since. Because you've been so busy? Uh, I've been busy writing. You know, well, we've talked a lot about my writing. I earn more money by being on the lecture circuit than I did by writing books. It seemed like that was when, when you found, at least from what I've read, when you, when you started speaking, you really found the thing that you might have been best at. Is that what you feel like you were best at? Well... A lot of my speaking tours was to promote my books. You know, uh, a lot of the speaking tours was uh, I would write the book or be in the middle of writing it knowing that it was going to be published, and I would get out there and tell the stories ahead of time so it would make interesting, uh, you know, give them a, a sneak peek, so to be. I did like writing more than I did lecturing, or I should be more precise. 
writing you could do in the confines of your home and still keep up a familiar relationship with your family. Uh, the, the lecture tour took you out for months at a time traveling. It wasn't so much the time on stage that bothered me. That was enjoyable. But the cursedness of travel uh, was what really I came to hate it. Oh my gosh, if you, if you were in our time, you could have these conversations like we're having right now and people could watch or listen to them across the world an hour after you did it. That, oh, that, you probably would have enjoyed that. Well, yes, but then again, if you stay in the confines of your own domicile, you wouldn't have the experiences that would lead to those other writings, would you? Well, you are so right. There's a whole bunch of people that now that you know, that you talk about your time on the river, that they missed all those experiences. They think they know the river because they, because they read a book, but they were never on the river. I, gosh, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I want to go back to the, the Sandwich Islands. You've been, your, your, your opinions are so controversial so often, which makes them interesting. But it seems to me that there are a lot of times that you are on both sides of most, if not all, arguments which I'm fascinated with. So I'll give you an example. When I think of your time in the Sandwich Islands, well, when the United States was trying to take ownership of those ownership or make them part of the United States, you were for that. But then later uh, I, in the Spanish-American War, you were against that. Well, it, you know, let's talk about the Spanish-American War. I'm not, I, I don't really rightly remember what I may have written about supporting our... our taking over or helping the Hawaiian Islands. I just don't remember. Uh, but I do remember clearly confusions people would have over my support or railing against the Spanish-American War. At first, I was for us liberating Cuba. I thought that it would be great if we could help them get out from under the domination of a, a monarchy and let them have self-determination, much in the same way that we freed ourselves from the, the English monarchy. But as it went on, it was obviously that that was not the political intention. We came to find out that our government had imperial notions that they must have inherited from England, and why they would not use the term colonize, that's exactly what they intended to do to Cuba and the Philippine Islands. So I became president of the Anti-Imperial League chapter there in New York City. And I started railing and writing several essays against our involvement in the place. It's shameful that we had no intention of helping them to become self-actualized and independent. We were simply wanting to let our commerce grow mightily at the expense of those Cuban citizens and the Filipinos. It's another situation where we're looking at our interests first, not theirs, is what you're, I think is what you're saying. Yes, yes, under the guise that we were God Almighty's gift to, to the beleaguered. I've oft, often of railed against politics. Yeah, yeah I, I understand you have some, some... In fact, let me ask you about that. You knew Mr. Roosevelt before he became president, is that correct? Yeah, we had bumped into each other. 
Theodore was, uh, I kind of admired the man, but once he became president, I certainly despised his politics. What, what about it? Well, again, he was behind this, heavily involved after the Spanish-American, with, you know, spanish his ride up San Juan Hill is what probably got him into being the vice president by stroke of God Almighty, uh, striking down the president six weeks later, he becomes president. But it, it's it's politics in general. You know, I've always included politics in my humor and especially in my presentations. You know, I even wrote a book called The Gilded Age with Dudley Warner. If you look, even in my time, the history book started calling it that. So I got to to name a whole section of history. The book was uh, written about the political hijinks after the Civil War. Well, if we're going to talk about politics, I guess we ought to define it, shouldn't we? If you look at the word politics, the first syllable is poly, which in Latin means many. And the second syllable is ticks, be defined as blood-sucking creatures. <laughs> uh, oh, Latin is always there to save the day when we need it. Well, when I was writing my first book, I needed to find employment to sustain me while writing. And I got a job as a newspaper reporter. I hated to do it, but I couldn't find any other honest employment. I did a stretch in Washington as a reporter, and every day I went over to Congress, that grand old benevolent national asylum for the helpless. And I reported on the inmates there. Oh, it was very entertaining. Never saw a body of men so hung so handy and information so uncertain. I'm just one of those men would had an idea when the, the, the deity said let there be light, we never would have had any. They could go on talking for a week without ever getting rid of the idea. You know, legislatures often make me question their intelligence. I once heard a state legislature rise to speak on a bill setting penalties for arson. He stood up and he said, well, they ought to hang him or make him marry the girl. Congressmen are no better. They vote by whim or rhetoric rather than intelligence. They often rise the superfluous speeches deciding talking points. When they have finished, they have been spoken on every subject but the one before the House. Then they vote without knowing what they are voting on or having any idea what would be the general results of their actions. You know, you've got me started on politics. I'm going to go on for a little bit. You can shut me off if you want to, but I think it needs to be said. It's been my experience that in the first place, God created idiots. That was for practice. Then he created congressmen. Congress passes laws covering industry they know nothing about. These laws confuse and hamper interested parties because they do not understand it. You know, Washington warned us about uh, political parties. Yeah, he was, he was a wise man. Uh, Washington Federal Public 
politicians think there's something good monthly about these institutions in Washington. It's unavoidable and irresistible. Circumstances will gradually take away the powers of state and concentrate them in a central government. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But let's return to Congress. It is the most interesting body I've found yet. It does more crazy things that does them graver earnestness than any state legislature. You know, a government committee is a body that keeps minutes and waste hours. <laughs> I, I know a great deal about them because I testified in front of them about copyrights. When did you have a copyright issue? Well, they, I have had it throughout my life. You know, copyrights in Europe are passed on to the first generation after the author. Ours started out with a copyright being only 14 years long before somebody else could steal your material. We got that eventually moved up to 28 years. You know, think about it. Uh, a clockmaker can turn around and turn his inventory over to his sons and daughters, and therefore his uh, progenitor uh, benefits from his labors. For an author in the United States at the time, lost control of his own work after 14 years, then it went to 28, then it went to 40. So I started wearing that white suit, by the way. Mm -hmm. When I went to a uh, committee meeting in 1906, it was in December. And when I took off my long black overcoat, they were surprised to see that I was wearing a white coat. It caused such a notoriety that I continue to wear that white suit every time I was in public thereafter. Always finding interesting ways to promote. Yeah, back to politics there a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. All Democrats are insane. But only <laughs> the Republicans know it. All Republicans <laughs> are insane. But only the Democrats can perceive it. The rule's perfect. In all manners of opinion or adversaries, they are insane. Is it any wonder what comes out of Congress that all the members are raving lunatics? Why, if you have these strong opinions of, of Congress, why did why well, did you not run and, and maybe change things? Who wanted to join the zoo? Everybody has a right to be stupid. Politics just abuse the privilege. Politicians. Interesting. Well, you know, what do you think when you... Yeah, go ahead. I'm just going to say, while Congress and state legislators try to damn this, you cannot legislate personal morality. And a humorist like me couldn't make mm. a decent living without the likes of Congress, state legislatures, or presidential candidates. Why would I want to go join there to become somebody else's humor, humor fodder? That makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> How do you feel about people that have more wealth than, than is needed? Do they abuse wealth uh, in, in your time? I mean, what, what are your feelings on that? Well, let's just look at, at examples, okay? Let's look at Commodore Vanderbilt, J.D. Rockefeller. Those would be two people I put on the negative side in that they use their wealth to accumulate more wealth with little regard for the human condition of those people who helped made their wealth. Then let's take a look at Andrew Carnegie, 
and uh, Henry Huddleston Rogers, which was vice president of Standard Oil, who helped make John D. Rockefeller his money. Those people both became uh, very important philanthropists that took their wealth and tried to do good for the common man, the Carnegie's uh, museums and, and, and libraries. And I have a personal affection for Henry Huddleston Rogers. We met at the time that I was in financial difficulties in the 90s, and he became my business advisor. He salvaged mine and Libby's life. Uh, when my publishing company, which I'd started, Webster and Company, he convinced us to declare bankruptcy. It was something that was scandalous for me and Libby. But he informed us and counseled us that uh, it was a business that we were in and that we needed to act in business. And so he said, while other businesses would get away with paying 50 cents on the dollar to their creditors, as I was an auditor and an orator, that I would have to find a way to pay back everything or I wouldn't be able to count on selling any more books or lecturing again. So, again, uh, I have oh, mixed feelings. Let me, let me interrupt. I, I want to interrupt. Sure. That's re you know, I, I've read a little bit about this, and I thought it was extraordinary because, I mean, here you are, you know, I, I think when you filed bankruptcy, were you, re were you 60 or right around there? Was that right? Oh, yes, I've been 60. Okay. And I, the thing that I thought was amazing when I, when I read about that, and I'm so glad you're talking about it, is that when a person files bankruptcy, they do it to get out of paying their credits. And apparently under, the, under, under some guidance of uh, Mr. Rogers, that, that, the man that was, worked for Standard Oil or ran it, suggested that you pay everybody back. And you did that, which really surprised me. And the reason that you were doing that was because if you didn't do it, there would be no option for you to sell books in the future. So is that where you're thinking? Well, that was a comment made by, by Henry. Understand oh, okay. it, was a, it was a condition that my wife set down because this was a totally disgrace to her. She, she came from the Langdon family in Elmira. Her father had been a very wealthy man making money on the railroads and mining industry. But his, her father was a, a, a very honorable man. Uh, he had been part of the Underground Railroad. He was he had been instrumental in helping Frederick Douglass get the freedom. Wow. And so this was just very disgraceful to her. And she wouldn't hear a thing about us declaring bankruptcy if there wasn't a plan to eventually pay every cent to all creditors. I now, see. Your wife that, later wanted yeah, that as well. That, right. That's when. Henry said to us, well, you know, you've got a point, Levy, that in, 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 in Mark's profession, if he doesn't pay off all creditors, his reputation will be ruined and is likely to greatly affect his ability to sell books or to lecture. So it that was a combination of the two that came there. That makes sense. When you were talking about getting married, I had heard her, her father wasn't agreeing, and uh, he was asking for character references. And the references <laughs> that came back, <laughs> you, you know the references I'm speaking of? Oh, how could I forget that? You, you know, uh, I first <laughs> fell in love with Libby before I ever met her. It was on the uh, voyage of the Quaker City. And Do I have Libby to be, or Libby? Libby, L-I-V-Y. Her name oh, okay, was Olivia. 
name right. was Olivia. But most okay. people called her Libby because her mother's name was Libby. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then, then uh, my pet name for her was Gravity because she kept me, my feet firmly on the ground. Her pet name for me was Youth because I was so indiscreet. She had to treat me like a teenager all the time. But anyhow, back to <laughs> back, back back to those letters. Let me lead up to how I met Levy. Uh, Please. Again, it was on the voyage of the uh, Quaker City, and and her younger brother Charles Langton had the uh, stateroom next to mine. One day, I walked in to visit him, and there he had an ivory miniature of Livy on his uh, bureau, and I fell in love with her immediately. Uh, later, after the voyage that December, I conned uh, Charles into invite, inviting me to meet her, his father and his sister when they were visiting New York City. And we had dinner together, and that's where I invited Libby to escort her to hear a reading by Charles Dickens. Well, later, during my lecture tours, I made sure that uh, they, had, they had offered a tacit in, invitation that if I was ever in the area, of Elmira, New York, stop in for a visit. Well, I immediately went to Redpath, who was the guy who organized my lecture tour, and I told him that I would not do the lecture tour unless he rooted me through Elmira at every chance that he would get. And it was there that I started courting Libby in the formal way. And uh, I asked her to marry me more than once, and she kept turning me down. But finally, when it got to be serious, you know, after dinner one evening, her father called me into the den. Of course, any father of a beautiful young lady like that would want to make sure that uh, the man that was going to marry his daughter was of uh, decent character. So he asked me for references. Well, I gave him five or six references, and I went on with a lecture tour. So when I came back a few months later, after dinner, he invited me back into the den again, offered me a drink, lit my cigar. Then he looked at me and he said, uh, Samuel, how is it you don't have any friends? <laughs> uh, and and uh, it kind of took me a little off guard, and then he laid the letters out on his desk. And he explained to me that all of those people that I had had uh, recommended or given to him as recommendations had told the truth about my character. And my only answer was the truth. Uh, I told him, well, I said uh, he, I knew he would find out about my scalable reputation anyway. And I decided to give him references that would tell him the exact truth. Well, he admired that. He said, I'll tell you what, I'll be your friend. And I think he understood that I had a serious love for his daughter, Livy, and could become a reformed man once I had my feet grounded in gravity. He appreciated the truth, huh? Yes. Yes, he did. And... Uh, and you know, of course, I had spent uh, a better part of a year with his, his with his uh, son 
Charles, so I imagine Charles spoke favorably of me, my character. Do you recall what was said in any of those character letters? Because there are two <laughs> specific things that I read that I found interesting. Do well, you come to your mind? Uh, no, nah, just generalities, you know, about my uh, drinking and carousing around. And uh, But I'd be interested to hear what, what you read. Well, I read one was said that he would find a drunkard's grave and that you were a man destined to be hanged. Well, you know, that, uh, that, that, that reminds me of a quote that my mother made of me. You know, I used to be drowned regularly in the Mississippi River and some enemy society would drag me out, drain me out, inflate me and send it on my way. Never seemed to bother my mother. She said, People born to be hung never need to fear water. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that wasn't the first time that uh, somebody predicted I'd end up by being hung. That's funny. You, it seems like you and Livy had a, fent- a, a very meaningful relationship. And I, 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 Did she die a couple of years ago? Is that right? She died in uh, 1904. 1904? Yes. Yes, she died in 1904. You know, uh, death has uh, followed me my whole life. Uh, I've battled with depression on and off, and uh, I'm just going to speak to that for a minute. Um, Maybe one of the reasons that I've always tried to make people laugh is for me to deal with my own devils. When I was only four years old, back there uh, in Hannibal, my sister got some bilious fever. Her name was Margaret. This would be 1839. I was a sleepwalker. Not only had I been born prematurely by a month or so and was sickly during my early years, I became a sleepwalker. And I got up one night and came into the room where my brother Orion was set with my sister Margaret suffering from this fever, and I played with the blankets at the foot of her bed. My mother took that as a sign that I was predicting her death Similar occurrence happened uh, some five years later with my brother Benjamin uh, in 1542. Of course, my father died in uh, in in 47, and that's when I became an apprentice. And after I got out onto the river, one of the heartaches of my life was that I got a job for my brother, younger brother Henry, who came very close with Henry after the death of Benjamin. Benjamin was just a couple years older than I was. Henry was mm-hmm. three years younger. But I got Henry a job on uh, the Pennsylvania as a mud clerk, which is an internship that didn't pay any money. And uh, on the going down the river, Doing his job, he tried to tell old Captain Brown or Pilot Brown uh, that he needed to turn in to the next landing and pick up some freight. Well, old Brown was hard of hearing and was pretty independent and ignored Henry, missed the mark, and we had to paddle back up. And the captain came up and wanted to know what was going on, and, and, and Brown tried to blame Henry for not telling him, and, and started to make a move on Henry. Well, I left the wheel. 
I was his apprentice pilot at the time. I left mm-hmm. the wheel, and he and I got into a rather large uh, brawl there for about 10 minutes, and this boat was going downriver with nobody steering it. Well, I expected to be uh, thrown in jail when we got to New Orleans, but the captain said that he understood the situation, and he wasn't going to see that was going to happen, and wanted to try to have me in place of Brown going back up river. Of course, I didn't have my license yet, so it wasn't possible. So I got off the ship. Uh, because Brown wasn't going to allow me back on, uh, pilots being uh, very, very much in charge of the boat, even though the captain uh, was was the person in charge of the boat. He wasn't in charge of the boat while it's on the river. The pilot is God on the river. Uh, oh. But I convinced I convinced uh, uh, Henry to stay. It wasn't his fault. And on the way back up, the Pennsylvania blew up, and as a result of his injuries, Henry would die. So I was the proximate cause of causing my brother Henry's death. Similarly, uh, my first child, Langdon, was born premature like I was. He was sickly. And uh, in 1872... On the 2nd of June, he would die, and I blame myself for that. Uh, it seemed that he was recovering, and so I took him out for a carriage ride, and while I was in a lively conversation with uh, with uh, Patrick O'Lear, our coach driver, I wasn't paying attention, and the coverlets dropped off of him, and he became very cold, uh, caught a cold after that. He would die of diphtheria, and the doctor said it had nothing to do with the covers coming off of him, but you can't convince me of that. Yeah. Then, join, then during that uh, world tour that we took, uh, we left uh, Susie, my eldest daughter, behind. She was trying to get involved with uh, some education at the time. And also, Jean, our youngest daughter, was left behind. Jean had started developing uh, what's become known as epilepsy. After first, it, first it came aboard, uh, made itself present after the death of her, both of her grandmothers one summer. And so we didn't uh, trust uh, in our travels the health arrangements that we might run into. So it was just uh, Libby and my middle daughter, Claire, that went on this world tour. We were all supposed to reconstitute the family when we got back to London in uh, 1896. Uh, when we got to Guilford House, a tele- telegram was waiting on us there that said Susie was ill back in Hartford and that she was expected to recover soon, and they'd be on their way. Well, of course, Libby and Clara got on the first boat to go home. Three days later, while standing in the living room, a telegram was delivered to me saying that Susie had passed peacefully. I don't know how a man can get a message like that, not be struck dead by a thunderbolt. Susie had been my model in my mind when I wrote the book Joan of Arc. Well, my wife Libby's uh, health continued to deteriorate quickly after that. And uh, Libby died on the 5th of June in 1904 in Florence where we took her for for health. Um, Since her death, I've been nothing but a 
angry old man blowing in the wind. But uh, the heartache didn't start stop there. It's this past December, Christmas Eve morning, our dear house servant, Katie Leary, came knocking on my bedroom door and rushed in and said, Jean was dead. Apparently, Jean had had an epileptic fit while in the bathtub and either died of a heart attack or drowning. So oh, death, is, death, death has followed me throughout my life. And maybe that's the reason I have found an outlet through humor to try to keep my mind off of those occasions. It makes me wonder if, when you say that, that humor was a part of your life and the way that you projected yourself long before all of this death. And I, I wonder, it, maybe you, you see some of that same tra tragedy in just living. And maybe, maybe that has something to do with the humor as well. Well, it is a part of life, and I think that you'll see that in, in several of my stories and, uh, and things that you'll see tragedies uh, interwoven. How do you keep your spirits up? Well, that's one of the reasons that I uh, just took a trip to Bermuda. I've always found Bermuda kind of like the white suit. It focuses you in the other direction. It's on gloom. It's such a bright, sunny place. But unfortunately, my health was uh, deteriorating down there. And uh, Mr. Payne, my uh, business advisor and biographer that's living with me right now, decided it would be best if we came back to Stormfield so I'd be closer to my medical advisors. I'm going to ask you a question right now, and I, 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 you've just been so gracious with your time and, and these stories. I've, I've been laughing this whole time, and I appreciate that, but there is something about you that is confounding me. It seems that you are an observer of life and people and human nature, and probably during your time and maybe ever one of the people that had a clearer picture of the way that the world worked and just the way that human nature is. And yet, when these tragedies happen throughout your life, people that you love passing along, I mean, we all get sad when we lose people we love, and yet there's no question that death is a part of living. And I guess I, I'm not surprised that, you know, you say you're struggling with depression, but quite honest with you, I, I I'm probably wouldn't have been surprised if this all of this tragedy hadn't affected you at all, because it is a part of living. Death is a part of living, and I just feel like you understand that more than me, because you have, you've lived all the way. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. Uh I think yeah, I would encourage you to look at uh, the chronology of my writing. I think that you will see that it has taken a pretty dark bend following the death of my daughter Susie. Especially after Libby died, I had nobody to buffer me back into the other direction. I've often said that Adam left us 
one great thing from his sin. That is, that he brought death into the world. I wrote a uh, particular short story. Uh, I, I won't tell the story. I'll just give you the outline of it. It was called the five the five boons of life. Five boons of life is fame, love, riches, pleasure. The last one's death. The story goes that uh, a young man came in contact with a fairy that could grant his wish- wishes, and the fairy says, "Choose between these five things." So the young man first chooses fame. And after short enjoyment, he decides it wasn't worth it. It causes trouble. Then he goes back and the fairy says, okay, I'll give you another chance. And he goes to love. Well, then, yeah, it was great for a while. But then like the death of Susie and the death of, of Livy and Jean comes the downside of love. You can be hurt very much. Then he chooses riches, much like in my life. You soon find out riches are not uh, the thing that makes you happy all the time, especially when you lose them. Then he chooses pleasure. Well, finally, last, he chooses death. That is, that was the whole idea of the fairy, that death is a great release. And you, these other things are but temporary, where death gives you permanent release. I'm sorry to hear that these last, these last years of your life you know, have been so difficult. It seems to me that you're still doing a lot of, that you've done a lot of good in these last years. Like, tell me, could you tell me about the angelfish? Oh, well, my my daughter Clara that still survives, she's in the house right now, doesn't want me to speak about that. You know, <laughs> I did. Well, think about it. You know, when I struck up relations with uh, uh, 10, 12, 14-year-old young ladies, and had uh, uh, a great many correspondence with them. I've had them in my house. Of course, they was always accompanied by their grandmother or their mother. Clara came back from Europe after traveling there with her husband, uh, Oswald, who is a a Russian pianist and composer. She came back and found all the correspondence, and I was having these girls come visit me. And she said, Father, What's this going to look like? An old man like you encouraging an angelfish club with all these young ladies. Uh, she saw that the society would probably look at it as a purian interest and think that I was a dirty, decrepit old man. Which you are, but, it, but not in this way, right? <laughs> <laughs> not in that way, no. I had, a long, I had a long desire to return to that age when my girls would come in and sit down beside me on the couch and have me tell stories after I got through the day's writing. It was the greatest period of my life, being in that Hartford home with those three young ladies. And I was trying to recapture that time in my memory by uh, experiencing these young ladies that was in my angelfish club. But uh, Clara very much clamped down on that. And uh, so we've not done away with it entirely, but we've been doing it more discreetly. I, I, I don't want her to find out that you know about that. So, <laughs> I, won't, uh, I won't say a word. Uh, right. I won't say a word. But is that, is that what happened during that? It was just basically, 
were you teaching these girls? Were you telling, was it just telling stories? Is that what it was? Basically, we just had a, a good old common dialogue about life, you know. I met some on my journeys to England when I got my uh, Oxford, uh, honorary Oxford degree in 1907. I met some of them in Bermuda uh, that were vacationing there with their parents. And we just simply struck up conversations. Uh, you know, adults become jaded. They get singular in their, their thinking, in their mind. A young person's mind is there to soak up knowledge, and they have such interesting questions and insights, and they will speak to you with dead honesty that uh, often adults learn to cloud over and, and disguise. Gosh, that makes a lot of sense. It's so true. Considering the just the, this this way that you live, just squeezing the juice out of everything, spend time with adults that are stuck in their ways would have to be something that would just bore you to death at times, I'm guessing. Oh, it makes you uh, nauseous. That's the reason I, I, I end so, so many stories, you know. That, that's, that, uh, again... Going back to politicians, that's that's reason why I've written so. You know, I usually include uh, uh, political humor in everything I do. Sometimes I sit down and I try to pull them together. Uh, politicians are people who, when they see the light at the end of the tunnel, go out and buy more tunnel. <laughs> uh, you don't have to pay for looking into your own family tree if you just go to run for office. Your opponent will do it for you. Oh, my uh, God. Principles aren't of much account anyway, except for election time. Afterwards, you hang them out to dry. A lie can travel around the world before the truth can put on its shoes. I think politics is, would, for somebody like you, is a never-ending source of material. Probably ten times of what you could experience on the river. Uh, humorous couldn't make a good living without the likes of Congress. Uh, and presidential candidates. Speaking of presidential candidates, did you save President Grant's reputation? Did I save it? I didn't have to save Grant's reputation. Grant was an honorable man. Unfortunately, it was his friends that he appointed to office while he was there, took advantage of him, uh, and did a lot of the corruption what I did, if you want to give me credit, was save Grant, Grant's family from poverty. Grant was always reluctant to write his memoirs. There had been people after him for a great deal of time. and He could have made money earlier off of those, but he did not want to make money off of the blood of those soldiers that uh, were sacrificed under his command. Uh, you know, he was called a butcher many times, and he took that very deeply and seriously. That's why he was reluctant to write his memoirs. Well, uh, after his spending some time in Europe, for the same reason that I did, because it was cheaper to live there, partly because some of his own investments uh, during one of the big crashes there in the late 90s that I suffered as well, financial crisis, he was bankrupt, and he found out he had throat cancer. 
And this was the emphasis for him to try to write and get some money so he didn't leave his whole family in poverty. Well, I visited him. I first met Grant when he was president. We were both embarrassed. Uh, he was embarrassed to meet the great author, so to speak. I was embarrassed to meet the great general that was now president. After all, I had been on the other side, but I had spoken several times at uh, the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic's Banquets, uh, which honored Grant and poked fun at him, and he seemed to enjoy it. Um, that was after his presidency a good bit. So I visited him one time, and he was writing his memoirs. And he asked me uh, what I thought of the offer that had been made, and I won't mention the publishing company that had made it. And I looked at the, the offer, and I told him I thought he was being ripped off. Of course, since he already was in talks with this publisher, I simply wrote down a figure that I would offer him to publish his memoirs. I told him to take it to that publisher, and if they didn't match it, and that's what I would pay him. It was a six-figure number. Uh, and so that's how my uh, Webster and company was very successful in publishing his memoir. And I also published Cycleberry Finn at the same time. It was probably the only two really money makers in my publishing history. There was a couple others, but uh, those are there. But anyhow, that was my dealings with uh, Mr. Grant. I think he did a lot of good for his uh, reputation and his family because I know that both, both were uh, struggling a little bit prior to you uh, publishing his memoirs. When you you wrote your biography, or at least part of it, and my understanding is that you decided not to release it for 100 years. Is that correct? Yes, and I understand that I released chapters or portions of my autobiography. Uh, but but the entire one that I truly dictated in the in the last uh, several years, I told them I did not want it published entirety till after a hundred years after I was gone. You had mentioned reason, earlier that sometimes you would you would try to tease people. Do you think teasing people prior to a hundred years is a little bit too much teasing? Well, what I hope to accomplish. <laughs> And uh, that, that, you see, I never intended to make any money off the autobiography. What, oh. I intended, what I intended to do was be totally honest in my feelings that I could never be totally honest while I was trying to ply my trade as an orator or a writer. I did not want anything that I had to say truthfully about people that I dealt with to injure them or their immediate family. That was the reason to let it go for a hundred years, so I could treat it to, to talk truthfully of what I truly felt. Oh gosh, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I understand uh, that you uh, came into this world around uh, Haley's comet. Have you seen it recently? <laughs> uh, it's in the high. It's in the sky right now. Is that your last question? It is, unless there's something you'd well, like to say. No, no, I, that just speaks up how I'd like to end this conversation, if you don't mind. Please. Uh, in, not long ago, in 1907, uh, I was at Oxford, where they conferred upon me the highest honor that has ever fallen to my share of this life's prizes. It was an honorary doctorate in law. 
while it makes me proud, sometimes it makes me humble too. And this was what I said at an honorary dinner after receiving that honor. Many and many years ago, I gathered in incident from Dante's two years before the mask. It went like this. There was a presumptuous little self-important skipper in a coasting sloop engaged in the dry apple and kitchen furniture trade. And he was always hailing every ship that came into sight. He did it just to hear himself talk and to air his small grandeur. One day, a majestic Indianman came plowing by with a course on course of canvas towering to the sky, her decks and yards swarming with sailors, her hull burdened to the pistol line with rich freightage of precious spices, lading the breezes with gracious and mysterious odors of the Orient. It was a noble spectacle, a sublime spectacle. Of course, the little skipper popped into the shrouds and squeaked out a hail. Get the hoy! What ship is that? What's the weather? In a deep and thunderous bass voice, the answer came back through the speaking tube. The Begum of Begal, 142 days out from Canton, homeward bound. What ship is that? Well, just crushed that poor little creature's vanity flat, and he squeaked back most humbly. Only the Marianne, 14 hours out from Boston, bound for Kittering Point, with nothing to speak of. Oh, what an eloquent word that only expressed the deep depths of his humbleness. That has been my case. During one hour and 24, not more, I pause and reflect in the stillness of night. And then I am humble. And I'm properly meek. And for that little while, I'm only the Marianne, 14 hours out, cargoed with vegetables and tinware. But during all the other 23 hours, my vain self-complacency rides high upon the white crest. And I am that stately Indianman plowing the great seas under a cloud of canvas, wandering in an alien world. And I am the Bam Gum of Bengal, 142 days out of Canton. Haley's Comet is now reaching its perihelion, and I have often said I came in with Haley's Comet, and it will be the saddest day of my life if I don't go out with it. I'm now laden with the troubles of the past few months, and I wish to join the Mary Ann homeward bound. Sure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed this. I wish the best of health in, in whatever time you have left, and I hope that we can speak again sometime. I would look forward to it. Throughout his life, Mark Twain said that he came into this world with Halley's Comet, and he would go out with it. And that is what happened, dying in the same year that it reappeared. Although his later years were very dark, it was hard to imagine any other outcome from a flame that had burned so brightly for 74 years. 
Twain spent time with royalty, with Nikola Tesla, and in Edison's shop. He played hard, loved strongly, and lived fully. We should all be so lucky to have lived such a curious life. Despite being hesitant to talk about it, for fear of being labeled a dirty old man, I'm fascinated by his creation of the Angelfish Club. This might be a good reminder for all of us that in the end, no matter how rich or successful we become, what ends up mattering most are the times that we can sit and talk and tell stories with the people that we love. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, when you subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you are making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.